This morning earlier, we opened our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, where we read that we ought to consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. And so we are going to consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. The apostle Paul had a great time of pleasure. You know it was pleasure for him to write the book of Hebrews and to detail how Jesus Christ was superior to anything the Old Testament religion of the Lord Jehovah had to offer. And he took it apart piece by piece and ended up with Jesus Christ being superior to all of it. Turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians 1, and we will return to a series that I will use as the Lord directs me to remind you of some of the simple promises of God to us that are made sure by our surety, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, just three verses this time, 18 through 20. But as God is true... Our word toward you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea. And in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. I have a simple goal, and that is to increase your faith, your confidence, your love, your passion of Jesus Christ. Faith and love are the keys. According to the Bible, do you know Him and His works, and do you love Him and His works? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ and all He's done for us? And do you love what He did for us? The faith that the Bible tells us overcomes the world is the faith and the belief that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. The summary of our faith, the summary of our religion, the summary of the truth of God is all about the man Christ Jesus. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. It's all about Jesus. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Amen. I'm glad you know the verse. It's all about Jesus Christ. Right. Who was God manifest in the flesh? Jesus. Who was seen of angels? Jesus. Who was received up into glory? Jesus. It's all about Jesus amen. because He is the yea and the amen of our faith and brings all the promises of God into fulfillment and into force. The one constant in this world is not so much death and taxes. They're quite uncertain because you don't know when about either of them or what. But human change is a constant. But our constant is unchangeable. The same yesterday and today and forever, Jesus said. Human promises are unsure by lies, by forgetfulness, by unwillingness to perform, and by inability to perform as I've mentioned before. Comfort for you. And I want to comfort you. Comfort for you, confidence for you, and hope. Those three things depend on the certainty and the ability of the one making promises. And with the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no lack in His certainty 
and ability. And he proved his love for us to be so great that he laid down his life for his enemies. All other persons you will ever meet will fail your faith and trust by their lack of affection or their lack of ability. It's just the way it is. Jesus, the Son of God, is entirely different from all others. He will never fail or disappoint you. Period. Doubt and trouble of all kinds assail in this life, as Psalm 88 made rather clear. Death and eternity stalk you unrelentingly. Trust in Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved now and hereafter. Amen. What will you do in a world and time of the worst deceivers deceived and deceiving? You need to find a faithful and a true witness. Amen. And we have one Amen. in the Lord Jesus Christ. The most certain people on earth should be Christians. Right. And of them, their pastors should be the most certain. As Paul explained in those three verses I just read to you. If you love the old, old story as we sing from time to time, then you should embrace these simple sermons about Jesus Christ. When we look at verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul's enemies accused him of not keeping his word and changing his commitment of being a yea and nay man. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to come and visit you. Nah, I've decided not to come and visit you. And so he was an uncertain fellow. And the Corinthians abused him for that. But Paul had not written to them uncertainly, questionably, weakly or confusedly or any, in any such way. He had intentions to visit Corinth and he had good reasons for not doing so. The trouble that, he, that, that arose in his path in verses 8 through 10 of this very chapter and then in verses 21 and 22 and 3 and 4, there at the end of the chapter, he said, I had another reason for not coming to visit you so I could be merciful to you and give you a greater space of time to repent and be ready for my visit. In verse 19, the three men that were at Corinth, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they did not have a weak or mixed message. They did not preach like the scribes and the Pharisees. They preached like their master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember how at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people were astonished because he taught them as one having authority? And authority means you can teach things in a dogmatic, absolute way, that this is the way it is and it's the only way it is. And they heard it that way. It wasn't the mealy-mouthed, effeminate form of preaching of the Pharisees. I hope you haven't heard out of this pulpit very many times. Well, I believe. How many times have you ever heard me say that in my entire life? Well, I believe. Well, I think. Other good men have fought, and words like that. That's a yay and nay preacher. That's yay and nay, and who cares about the thoughts of men? Right. We want absolute, certain truth presented from the Word of God and from the Word of God only. Amen. Those three men declared the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God, without any doubt or uncertainty. And this is unique wording by the Apostle Paul in verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Those few words there, just uniquely written, here by Paul, and that is what they preached, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and they preached Him absolutely dogmatically and certainly. They were, yea, preachers of the Son of God. They preached a clear, confident, certain message based on His performance and truthfulness and integrity. Amen. There was no uncertainty or doubt about any aspect of it. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is the sure foundation of the church, which men better take heed what they lay on and build on that foundation. Wood, hay, and stubble doesn't match it, but gold, silver, and precious stones do when the metaphor is properly understood. The faith and gospel and doctrine of Jesus Christ was given once and it cannot change. He gave it to the apostles in the apostolic age once, and we are to earnestly contend for that faith that was once delivered to the saints. Jesus Christ never changes because He's the faithful and true witness. Proper preaching of the true gospel has no room for equivocation about the Lord. Those three men unapologetically preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in absolute and certain terms. There's nothing uncertain about our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the final person and the ultimate solution for all issues. He only spoke the truth and he performed all that he spoke in perfect agreement with what he spoke. And so all God's promises in Jesus, one way or another, depend on him for fulfillment and he will fulfill them and he has fulfilled them. And his death on the cross, resurrection from the dead and ascension up into heaven are such stupendous events that they put those promises of God into force because God sent his son to do those things and Jesus did them. There's no yea and nay in him. God said it, that settles it, because all God promised in Jesus Christ is yes and truly. Right. Amen, when it's used as an interjection in the way it is in 2 Corinthians 1.20, truly, indeed. And we have a yea, which is yes. And so all the promises of God are yes, and all the promises of God are truly All the promises of God are indeed, verily, amen, yes. And so we trust in what the Bible tells us that God promised us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the yea and amen of our religion. We don't have a quorum of apostles in Salt Lake City. We have one seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, our Lord Jesus Christ. All our God's promises depend on Him, and He is fulfilling them at this hour. Jesus is the yes of our religion. God promised, Christ worked, all is certain. Jesus is the amen of our faith. God promised, Jesus died, heaven is truly, verily, ours. It's an inheritance we shall receive. There's no uncertainty or, or things left to doubt in our religion. All is certain in Jesus Christ. What makes the world go round, as some ask? What makes the world go round? Our Lord Jesus does, pure and simple. He makes the world go round because by Him all things consist, and He upholds all things by the word of His power. There's no pandemic that's reached anywhere that wasn't by the express and direct permission and direction of the Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't bare permission, it's direction. Jesus cannot and will not change. He is forever the same. There's not even a shadow of turning with God or His Son. There sits in heaven the most faithful and glorious man for your eternal confidence. He is with you day and night and will see you through the curtain of death and will never forsake you. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, he will never change and cast you out. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. I have given you promises of God like the seasons from Genesis Number one. Number two, the rainbow that depends on his yea and amen. Number three, eternal life before the world began. Four, 
God told the devil his future outcome in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 that he would be dealt a fatal blow to the head by the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number five, Jesus was so truthful and he was such a yea and amen savior that even the devils trusted him and they could ask him questions about their future destiny. Number six, Moses was great, but Jesus the yea and amen was greater. Number seven, Joshua was great, but Jesus the yea and amen was greater. Number eight, God swore with an oath to our father Abraham about his son and Jesus has fulfilled all of that by being the seed of Abraham and putting the promises of Abraham into force for us Gentiles. Right. The, the main promise that was given to Abraham was surely, blessing I will bless thee, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in thy seed. And that is the preaching of the free grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, preached to Gentiles, according to Galatians 3, 8, that tells us that is what God meant to Abraham. Right. Now, number nine, and that is for today, and however many I can get to. God promised a priest that would be totally successful. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. And in some respects, I regret that I was born a Baptist. And in some respects, and only some, I regret that some of you were born Baptist so that you never learned to rely on priests because you don't even know what a priest is hardly unless you're taught from the book of Hebrews or you really learn the Old Testament. Priests are necessary as an intermediary between God and men. Right. If your God's great enough to be worshipped as a God, then you need an intermediary because men are not very great. Right. So if you've got a religion that's got a, great, a big God, then you'll need a priest to go between you and him. Here's what it says in the Bible about that. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron." There's a great deal of logic and explanation in those four verses about the value of a priest. You need a priest because you need someone who can offer gifts and sacrifices to God that God will accept. That's number one. Verse number two, you need someone that can have compassion on you for your ignorance and on running out of the way from time to time like all we like sheep have gone astray yep. and we have gone to our own way. You need someone that has experienced those same kind of temptations who can have compassion on you, which is verse 2, because he himself is compassed with infirmity. A priest is a great, a priest is appointed by God, so he has access to God. A priest is a man, so he understands your temptations. It's just a perfect arrangement. It is a perfect arrangement, Amen. and it hasn't changed. It's a perfect arrangement. Verse 3, and because of these reasons, he ought, here's his duty, here's his job description. He should offer sacrifices to God because they're acceptable to God and He understands the sinners that came to Him that are in need of having their sins paid for. And then verse 4, No man takes this office to himself, but special men that are called by God. Of course, in false religions, those special men are said to be called by God by all sorts of their own ideas and claims that God called them into the priesthood. 
We need someone between us and God. If, we ha- if, if God has made promises that we need a priest between us and Him that is a yea and amen priest. And that is the point I'm driving at right now out of Hebrews chapter 5. The Jews, the Hebrews, Paul's writing Hebrews. He didn't have to explain much about priests because they understood priests. They had had priests for 1,500 years of Moses' system of religion. It was called the Levitical priesthood. Christianity of the New Testament is no different. There's a priest, and there's lots of priests. Amen. There's one great high priest, and there's a whole lot of priests. Now God promised a king and a priest to come from David. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That verse stuck into Psalm 110 is glorious. You know, we often stop with the first part of the chapter. It's only seven verses long. But Psalm 110, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And we punch the air and we're thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ being King of kings and Lord of lords over all his enemies because that's what it's teaching. But Jesus is king and priest. And so we have to wait till we get down to verse 5 where it says, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the Lord swore and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so, when you look at Hebrews chapter 5, notice verse 10. Let's notice verse 6. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, quoted out of Psalm 110. Let's look at verse 10. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's look at chapter 6 and verse 20. Whither our high priest for us is entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7 and verse 1, for this Melchizedek. And then finally, Hebrews chapter 7, we get 28 verses, and they are glorious about Melchizedek. Do you remember the mystery of Melchizedek on a Wednesday night? That's Melchizedek priesthood. Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek didn't have a beginning. Melchizedek didn't have an end as far as the priesthood. There were no genealogical records for him. He was superior to the Aaronic priesthood. He was superior to Levi. He was superior to Abraham. Who paid tithes to whom? Did Melchizedek pay tithes to Abraham? Or did Abraham pay tithes to Melchizedek? Yes. The latter is true. And the, the greater is blessed by the lesser. Meaning, Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Now, when you say that to Hebrews, you have just made one large doctrinal point that they are going to question and they're going to need some proof of that. And Hebrews chapter 7 was written to prove that. And it is beautiful and powerful. And you read Hebrews 7 two weeks ago. I know when you read it. I wanted to assign it to you yet last night. But I had mercy because I knew you'd read it two weeks ago. And I knew that all of your memories were like steel traps or elephants. And you wouldn't forget a thing that you read in Hebrews 7. It's powerful. Abraham was their great trust. That because on the seed of Abraham, heaven's mine. I'm going to go to Abraham's bosom because Abraham's there. And that heavenly country, see, they weren't futurists and they weren't dispensationalists. They knew where Abraham was and they know that's what he was seeking while he was on earth. But how did, he, how did we get there? Through a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Because there under David, 1,000 years B.C., 
He wrote, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And who's under consideration from verse 1? The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, said to my Lord, small letters L-O-R-D, sit thou on my right hand. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the yea and amen of our religion. He is the priest between Almighty God, Jehovah. He sits at God's right hand. And he is a priest better than Abraham, Levi, Aaron, or anyone else that came out of Israel. He was a king and a priest. He was born in the tribe of Judah. He was ordained a priest greater than Levi. So let's just skip them. It's all here in Hebrews 7. I'd love to go through Hebrews 7 verse by verse. But do you know what that would mean? That would mean that on point 9 in my outline, we would need to take two services. And so I'm just rattling off a few things for you that I hope you enjoy and know where you can go to find them in detail. And it's Hebrews chapter 7. This great high priest was superior to Abraham and Levi because Abraham paid tithes and they were in Abraham's loins. Do you know where you were 100 years ago? You were in your grandfather's loins. That's how the Bible looks at your existence. God had already chosen you in Christ Jesus before the world began 6,000 years ago, but you were in your grandfather's loins. And so Levi and Aaron were in Abraham's loins when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And so Paul is reasoning, hey, Hebrews, Israelites, you want some great priests? You've trusted those great priests that came out of Levi and that were sons of Aaron. They paid tithes to the priest I'm talking about. That is such powerful, weighty doctrine if you'll think about being a Jew and hearing words like that. And they're written down for us. That's verses 1 through 10. This great high priest was superior by, the, by a order that was greater than the law of Moses. Look at Hebrews 7, 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, because that's what the Jews thought, we've got the greatest priesthood on earth, for under it the people received the law. That was a great blessing. What further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Do you understand the logic of that, sent, that question? In that 11th verse, if the Levitical priesthood were sufficient, why did David write in Psalm 110 that we need a new order of priests? Powerful. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. This is some of the tightest, most glorious, logical, rhetoric in the history of the world. Yes, Hebrews is my favorite book. Yes, I'll promote it every way I can. That is wonderful logic. That is just powerful logic. The Hebrews were tempted to quit on Christ. They were baptized holy brethren, as we've already read, beloved brethren, and they were tempted to go back under the Jew system of religion of Moses, which was the Levitical priesthood, or priests descending from Aaron. And here Paul is just taking apart everything that they thought they, that they might have that was good under Moses' system of religion. And it wasn't good enough. We have something far greater. They had something far greater. Oh, Jesus is a priest by a perpetual promise rather than a carnal commandment. It's in verses 15 through 19. Look at 15. It is yet far more evident. Paul, in the first 14 verses, I thought you gave enough evidence to crush the greatest devotee of Abraham, Levi, and Aaron. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment in the book of Leviticus, but after the power of an endless life. 
Amen. Are you kidding me? It just goes on and on. It's beautiful. Yep. I want to preach the whole chapter to you so bad. So he quotes it again. Is this redundant? Nope. Would a good English teacher circle it and write redundant because of verse 17? For he testifieth thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Have we had that a few times in this book? Because priests are so important, but there's a priest that is better than Aaron. Right. Aaron was Moses' brother. Aaron was a great priest. But there's a greater priest. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our priest at this hour. Do you know what he's doing right now? Making intercession. Making intercession right now. Do you know that our singing was acceptable to God? Do you know that our praying was acceptable to God? Our meeting in the back room was acceptable to God. Orville presenting the psalm was acceptable to God. Me preaching right now is acceptable to God. Who's it made acceptable to God by 1 Peter 2, 5? Acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Amen. He's making all of it possible. Right. You know, when I look inside, seven days a week and especially Saturday nights and Sunday mornings, when I look inside, I say, Lord, you're going to have to do all of this and it's all for you, and it's all by you, and it's all to you and through you, that's because I have a great high priest that makes what we do acceptable. Right. Because what we do in ourselves is, is rather unacceptable, but it's made acceptable by him who was perfect and who died for us and rose again for us and put away all our sins and all our sinfulness, and he's going to see us glorified in heaven. That's his commission that was given to him by God, and he will see it through because my glorification is yea and amen in Jesus Christ. And so in verse 20, oh, verse 15, it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment out of Leviticus. I added those words for you, but after the power of an endless life. Then he quotes it from Psalm 110, verse 18, for there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. They could never draw nigh to God like we can. Everyone in here can run straight into the presence of God. Benjamin, how old are you? You're seven years old. You can go straight into the presence of God through Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. He's your high priest and you don't need any other priest. You don't need your pastor or your papa or your own father or mother. You can go straight into the presence of God yourself. And Naomi, I say that to you as well. And I say that to you, Abigail and... I'm thinking of you, Lily, when I say those words. You can go straight into the presence of God because that Old Testament restriction was unprofitable. Verse 20, and inasmuch, here's another argument. Oh, seven is beautiful, and it's been preached to you in detail. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath. Oh, Paul's pointing out that the Old Testament priests of Moses and Aaron and the Levitical priesthood were pitiful. They weren't, they weren't made with an oath. But Jesus was made a priest with an oath. There was actually God swearing involved in it. Do you understand? He's just piling up the evidence that we have a yea and an amen for our religion. Do you know how many people have put their trust in Father O'Reilly? Especially in the island of Ireland? We have the Lord Jesus Christ as our great high priest. Amen. That is why I began this morning, consider the apostle and high priest. 
consider, stop and think about this high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7 is, is fantastic material. And he was made with an oath. And notice again in verse 21, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Are you kidding? Is it again in chapter 7? Is it again in the book of Hebrews? How many times is it there? That's your challenge for this afternoon. How many times is it there? It's there a lot of times. Verse 23, And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death, but this man. How many are in man? Is man a singular or a plural noun? But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, as it's going to tell us down through here, his priesthood is totally different from them because they died and couldn't see the work to its conclusion. They were not yea and amen priests. The Lord Jesus Christ is our yea and amen priest. Do you grasp that Jesus is the glorious yea and amen of God as our great high priest? He is the priest the mediator and the intercessor, to save us to the uttermost. Look at verse 25. Wherefore? What's wherefore therefore? In verse 25, wherefore? What's it therefore? Because they all died, but he didn't die. This man, because he continueth ever, he ever lives. Thou art a priest forever. Forever. He never dies. This man, because he never dies, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore? Based on that fact, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth. He doesn't die. He ever liveth to make intercession for them. We've got one that will never stop, never end. Not, he'll never die. He'll never quit. He never changes. He has an endless life. Right. What's his endless life doing? Making intercession for us. He will not lose a single one of us. So many people, so many millions, so many billions have put their trust in human priests in the history of the world, but we have a divine priest. We have the Lord Jesus Christ, and He is the yea and amen of our religion. And we can go to God, and, he's gonna, and God's going to accept us because of the work of this priest. He's accepting our feeble worship in these surroundings today, and the, and the audience that's here present, including its pastor especially, are pitiful and weak and base and poor and weak and foolish. But we're accepted in the presence of God by this priest. Amen. He is the surety of his people, which is a single word synonym for our argument. He is sure and true as the assigned agent in our salvation. He is our yea and amen. Now that's chapter 7. Let's go over to chapter 10. The last will and testament of heaven needed death to put it into force. You say you took so long on point number 9 of yours in chapter 7 that you're not going to make very much... I know! I know all that. Hebrews 7. I beg you to read it or to listen to it preached. It's on our website. To see the logical arguments of the Apostle Paul convince the Hebrews that their priesthood of 1,500 years was junk in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ. Have I shown you that the promise of Psalm 110, verse 5, is in Hebrews a few times? Let's go to chapter 10. Oh, let's not go to 10 yet. Let's go to 9. You read it last evening. 9. Chapter 9. Chapter 9 comes before chapter 10. Verse 15. And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, 
they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So, why did, in the middle of this verse, let me just get this out of the way. In the middle of this verse, it says that certain men needed to be redeemed who had transgressions under the First Testament. What's the First Testament? 1,500 years of Moses' religion. 1,500 years of Moses' religion did not redeem them because it never put away sin. And so Jesus Christ had to die in the fullness of time, and His sacrifice went backward toward them, went forward for us, and covered those that were living at that time. Okay, just get that out of the way. That's what the middle of that verse is referring to, are the sins of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, David, Solomon, and the rest of them that are children of God. And, and we'll take, a, we'll take a, a speculation that Solomon might be a child of God because God loved him. The way he lived, there's no evidence if we didn't have some of those other verses about God loving him when he was born. You measure men by their lives. You don't measure them by anything else. Faith, has, faith is utterly, absolutely irrelevant. And so we need God to say that he loved Jedediah, which was Solomon's other name. For this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, we do believe in, in a means of our salvation. And the means of our salvation is not preaching the gospel. It's not the seven sacraments of Rome. It is not baptism. And by me saying what I just said, in just a few seconds, I've blown out almost all evangelical Christians and Catholics. But we do believe in the means of salvation. But the means of salvation that gets salvation accomplished is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. By means of death. Yes, we believe in means of salvation. Jesus died for us. Verse 16, for where a testament is, last will and testament is what it's called. The last will and testament of so-and-so, I bequeath to my beneficiaries all my assets. And then they're listed. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. If a covenant has been written up, I, the living God, determined to give by inheritance to all of my children eternal heaven and a new heaven and a new earth, eternal righteousness and fellowship with me forever, I bequeath to all my children. Signed, the last will and testament of Jehovah. I am that I am. He cannot die, so we are in serious trouble. He has written a covenant promising us eternal life, but he cannot die. But he sent the Lord Jesus Christ who did die for us. And so by means of death, that covenant went into force. For a testament is a fourth force, verse 17, after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. God promised eternal life before the world began. I'm trying to tie this all together for you in your minds. Did God promise eternal life before the world began? Right. Titus chapter 1, the first two verses. He certainly did. But it didn't go into force until the testator died. You say, well, God's will is strong enough to get it done. No, not when it's called a testament. It needs the death of the testator. Did someone come to do the will of God? Amen. That's the next chapter. I'm cheating a little bit. But yes, he did. The Lord Jesus Christ came and put it into force by dying. You know what? That's why he's the yea and amen. God promised eternal life. How did it happen? The testator died. Jesus, as the God-man, died putting the last testament of God, the first, the New Testament, 
into force by the death of the testator. Right. God was manifest in the flesh. Fantastic drama. Incredible. Eternal life is to inherit the universe, and it's compared to a last will or testament in this particular passage of Scripture, and Jesus put it into force. He's the testator. He's the yea and the amen. You can just stare at 15 as long as you want to. I remember in the early days of my later teen years, when I was finding verses like this, and they were coming alive to me in a way that I had never seen or understood them before. So I'm going to read it to you one more time. And for this cause, let's, let's back up. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And then it goes on to explain it. Beautiful. He's the yea and the amen. Chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things. Do you know what that means? When you look back at the Old Testament, it had some shadowy pictures of real things, but it was just shadows. For the law having a shadow of good things to come. See, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the reality. We have the truth of it. We have it literally. We have salvation through the Son of God. We know His name. We know His mother's name. We know His legal father's name. We know His brother's names. We know His sister's names. We know everything about Him. We know the names of His apostles. We know the Lord Jesus Christ. And there were there was shadows pointing forward to salvation by Him dying on the cross for us. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, it wasn't really close. It wasn't... The Old Testament wasn't really close, showing us Jesus Christ's death for us. Can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. That Old Testament never made anybody perfect. And they were offered year after year after year, and they never made anyone perfect. So it wasn't a very good image of what was going to come in Jesus Christ. And so verses 1 through 4 say that if those sacrifices had had any saving power, they would have stopped being offered because they would have made somebody perfect. Because once a sacrifice makes someone perfect, there's no reason to offer it again. So verses 1 through 4. Then verse 5. Wherefore? Because, in verses 1 through 4, as Adam prayed this morning, in verse 4, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Or, he referred to verse 13 of chapter 9. Wherefore? Because animal blood cannot take away sins, wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering, this is from Psalm 40, Thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God." All that is beautiful. That's the yea and the amen of our salvation. A whole system of religion given by God on Mount Sinai through Moses who came down and that Old Testament was so glorious. It was the greatest religion on earth by infinity. His face was shining and he had to put a veil over it even though it was a covenant 
that was to be thrown away, even though it was a covenant of condemnation. And I'm wanting you to raise your hand right now and ask me, Pastor, is there a chapter in the Bible that tells me all those things? That the Old Testament, even though there was a veil over Moses' face and had a certain measure of glory, was not glorious in this, that when it was compared to the New Testament, it was nothing but a dark piece of coal? 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. How can a testament of condemnation compare to a testament of salvation? Oh, if Moses' face shined, what do you think Jesus shined like on the Mount of Transfiguration and when he ascended up into heaven? Verses 5 through 6 tell us that a body was prepared for the Lord Jesus Christ and he came to do the will of God. It's all right there. It's another yea and amen of our salvation. God promised eternal life. Animal blood didn't do it, even though millions of animals were killed over 1,500 years. And Jesus Christ did it with the body that was prepared for him. Don't you ever forget that body. That is why he wants us to come together as oft as you do it. As oft as you do it, this is my body, which is broken for you. We're celebrating the yay and the amen when we have communion. Yes, it is one of my points that we will eventually get to sometime this year or next year. The yay and the amen is what we do at communion. It's what we do in baptism. We're acknowledging that the yay and the amen was killed, crucified, and buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures for our sins. And so my point number 11, my promise number 11 is that there needed to be a body given to someone that would come and die and replace all the animal blood that was shed that never made anyone perfect. And Jesus came and did it. Right. This is the will of God. God had a will for his children to be saved, his elect to be saved. And Jesus came and obeyed that will. And involved in that will was, I'm going to give you a body and you're going to lay that body down in death. So here we go. And these are, these are very high on my list of favorite verses. It starts at verse 10. Let's get verse 9 because it's quoting it again. Then said he, Lo, this is Jesus, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first. He gets rid of that first covenant with 1,500 years of animal blood that he may establish the second covenant, the blood of the New Testament which is why we hold up the cup and we say, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. We don't say, this cup is the Old Testament in my blood. We don't say, this cup is the testamental blood of God. We say, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Communion's important. Lord, pardon thy servant. Pardon us. Pardon this church and pardon its pastor that we haven't had the Lord's Supper, but we don't know how to get all together into one place like you've called us to do. You show me how to do it. You show me that I ought to do it and thumb my nose at our rulers and I'll do it. I'm not afraid of the rulers. I'm more afraid of thee. Show us what you would have us to do. But I hope that just preaching it right now, we will realize that this is my body which is broken for you and this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Our souls will embrace it and lay hold of it, even though we are not keeping the ordinance at the moment. That was verse 9. He taketh away the first. He gets the first covenant of Moses 
1,500 years out of the way that he may establish the second. By the which will, God's will. Jesus said in verse 9, I come to do thy will, O God. Verse 10, by the which will, that is the will of God. By the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That is yea and amen if there ever was one. Because it is the will of God put into force by Jesus Christ offering his body once for all. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down in the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Amen. That's the yea and the amen. That is why the promises of God, the promise of eternal life, is all wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ. My number, tw my number 12 is too long for right now. I want to do this. I want to jump to number 22. You say, you've got 22? No, I don't have 22 of these. How many promises do you think God has in the Bible? 22? 22. Let's go to 22. We deny all the yea and nay doctrines of devilish men. False Christianity relies on human performance rather than God's promises in Christ. Is it too harsh to call them devilish men? Not if Paul was inspired. Right. Another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. They are devilish men, verses 13 through 15 of 2 Corinthians 11. What I just mentioned to you is 2 Corinthians 11, 3 through 4 about that. There is no uncertainty in God's gospel, but there is confusion and uncertainty in Arminianism. Their religion is nay and not at all. Their religion is yea and nay. Their religion is I'm not sure. Their religion is I don't know. Their religion is we'll have to wait and see. Their religion is we'll do our best. Instead of yea and amen. Just think about this very briefly and very quickly. Unlimited atonement. They believe in an unlimited atonement. Did Jesus pay for all the sins of all men or not? Ask them sometime. Why are they in hell then? Why are most of those that Jesus died for in hell? If Jesus died for all their sins, what are they doing in hell? That's a yay and nay religion. Yay, Jesus died for them. Nay, were their sins paid for. That's yay and nay. Ours is yay and amen. Jesus only died for the sins of the elect, and he paid for every one of them, and they'll never have to pay for those sins themselves. They were forever sanctified, made perfect, as I just read to you from Hebrews 10. How about the love of God? Does he love all men, even those in hell? What kind of love is that? That he's loving those in hell. That they ought to be running around hell saying, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. If their religion is true. Because it's a yay and a nay religion. You ask them, does God love everyone? Yay. Does he love those in hell? I'm not sure. And they're all messed up. But we are yay and amen. God hates the wicked, every single one of them without exception, and God loves all those that He chose in Christ Jesus before the world began. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Psalm 5, 5. That verse ought to be learned very early in a child's life because it is an axiom and a foundation for you to appreciate salvation. That God saved us from a condition that we were in that He would ordinarily by nature hate. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Synergistic regeneration. 
They believe that regeneration is the synergy combined by the Holy Spirit and sinners responding before they're born again. Will Jesus regenerate all the elect or must they help him get the job done? Well, it's yea and nay. Perseverance of the saints. If God guarantees their perseverance, why do so many fall and fail? Because they have a yea and a nay religion. Abraham's justification. Was it when he counted the stars or before he counted the stars? Yea and nay. They don't know when Abraham was justified. Even though Paul gave so much attention to Abraham in Romans 3 and 4 and Galatians 3, they don't know when he was justified. They have a yea and a nay religion. The Great Commission. Did the apostles fulfill it? Yea. Was it given to us to fulfill as well? Yea. Well, that's a nay then to the first part because the apostles must not have fulfilled it. They have a yea and a nay religion. And we could just go right down through everything that there is in the Bible. Is there an age of accountability? Yay. Why do you spank your children before they reach it? Nay. Yay and nay. Constantly. They have a yea and a nay religion. Ours is yea and in him, amen. Is there an age of accountability? Absolutely not. The whole concept is ridiculous. We were sinners before. Abraham was born by the first Adam. And on and on we could go. We were held accountable for Adam before we even had existence, even 6,000 years before we had existence. Is salvation decisional? Is it his choice like all other things or a dead rebel's choice? That's a two-part question. So they say yay and nay in one form or fashion. Brethren, our religion is so different, so different. Is God's love absolutely certain and you can never be separated from it? Then why is the vast majority of the human race separated from the love of God according to their scheme of salvation? Right. Absolutely separated from it. Do you know how they all define hell? Separation from God. I don't know where in the world they ever got that, but that is how they define hell. It's separation from God. Well, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, 38 and 39 that we cannot be separated from the love of God. And they say that most of the world is going to be separated from the love of God. Well, what kind of love is that? They are a yay and a nay religion. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I exhort you, if you haven't listened to Hebrews in a while, you might want to try Hebrews. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want to get the maximum benefit out of this series of messages, the second service today is going to be different. But if you want to get the maximum benefit out of these sermons about Jesus being our yea and amen, I would highly recommend Hebrews, because Hebrews is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that you can go back and look at Hebrews 7 and rejoice in it. I hope you can look at 9 and rejoice in it, 10 and rejoice in it. And then think about what many of us were once taught in our lives, a yea and a nay religion, so different from what the Apostle Paul preached. So different. Stand with me, please.